0: Heroes and those legends. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Follow your heart. Can. You
1: never go wrong. Welcome to QTB Legends, where legends of the gaming industry come to tell their story. My name is Nick, and I am joined by the one and only. It is QTB's Brad. What's going on, man?
2: Nick, I am doing great. I I'm just so thrilled with this launch of Quit the Build Legends. We've had an opportunity to really start to break into the lore of the gaming world and and today we've got another great opportunity, another another legend joining us for the first time, Roger Hector. So Nick, can you tell us a little bit more about Roger as he joins us here on the show? Of course. And Roger, welcome to the show. We're we're really really excited to have you on.
1: Thank you. Good yeah, to be
0: here.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, gosh, your resume is is very impressive to say the least. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be talking on this episode about your time at Atari, uh, Bali, even going into EA and Disney. Um, this will be a two part series because you got so much, uh, you know, that you, you can talk about. That's uh, we'll be talking about your time at uh, Sega overseeing, you know, major Sonic the Hedgehog releases Um, as as a Sega fanboy. I got I got questions, (laughs) (laughs) but that's for another episode. But before we get into that, you know, I I think your your time here on QTB Legends is very unique because your legend, Roger, is still being written. Right. And I say that because you have uh, a very big game release coming out, a little something called Venture Valley. Why don't you tell us about that?
0: Oh, happy to! Uh, yes, Venture Valley is is uh, it's a brand new game. Uh, it's an online multiplayer, multi-platform kind of esports-oriented uh, uh, game that is going to be, or certainly is, is uh, just coming out now as uh, uh, as a product that was inspired by a charitable foundation, the Singleton foundation, Will and Carrie Singleton uh, wanted to fund the creation of a game that would teach entrepreneurism and financial literacy to young people without it being an educational game or edutainment. It was, it was all about creating something that would be fun, uh, fun to do, fun to play, but you would wind up learning about how businesses actually started. So what it is, is it's a game about creating startup businesses that are, are, uh, uh, they're fun, they're, they're, uh, uh, they start very simplistically, you know, you start with like a dog walking business, something everyone can kind of relate to. And then uh, there are many, many businesses that you get to start up and play against opponents and competitors and see who can do the best uh in a in a given period of time so so much of the game is about a uh starting up a you know a pizza parlor or a, uh you know maybe all the way up to something like a robot factory because all of the the, uh, the numbers associated with the financial aspect of creating a business and running a business you know you you can't play the game without ultimately learning what's the difference between a gross profit and a net profit. You know, you just, you find these things out. And these are, uh, this is some of the learning that takes place while you're actually having fun and you're you're playing cards against opponents. You actually start your business and then you, we, we have a whole system of card play. You can kind of see some of those down at the bottom of the screen there of Positive cards that you can play on your own businesses, uh, and that that might be something like uh, gee, there's a unknown uh, surprise refund that you get on your on your your products that you sell in oh, your store. Not the chargeback. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you get there's all kinds of stuff that's that uh, uh, is sort of funny in many cases, but it's all based on reality. So you have positive cards you play on yourself. You have negative cards that you play on your opponents, and uh, you know maybe maybe somebody uh, has a skunk that wanders into their restaurant, and boy, you see all of the all of the uh, the patrons, all the people run out of the restaurant because <laughs> that's terrible, and that sort of thing is is uh, uh, you know one of many 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 different types of events that can be played while you know while the clock is ticking and you're trying to ultimately you know make the most money before the clock runs out or something like that there's many different businesses many different uh uh, goals and objectives and and so yeah you wind up learning uh some interesting things and because of that there are a number of uh schools that are actually taking it in Uh, to use it as part of their curriculum. Wow. And and I I say that, but, you know, a little hesitantly, because it's it's not being marketed and promoted as an edutainment or education game. It's really all about having fun. But you do learn, you can't avoid but learn about uh, some real things. That is knowledge that you get to take away with you after you've played the game.
2: Well, i have to say i'm looking at the image right now the the, the crypto criminal is is quite funny <laughs> and realistic to be able to have a crypto criminal and you lose 50 percent of your daily revenue what a what a like you said it's it's very current right it's not just about learning learning those financial literacy skills but it's current with what's going on in today's world i know crypto is very much coming up right now in in today's world and to be able to have get that exposure and learn about that and, and learn about these financial literacy skills it's a really uh, you know, if I could have learned about this as a younger kid, I think I would have been better off. You know, today as an adult. So I think this is a really, a really cool game in terms of that. Uh, you know, feature that that goal. And you mentioned competitive. You mentioned you mentioned playing against other people. H- how does that work with this game? What's the multiplayer aspect like?
0: Well, the multiplayer. Uh, in some ways, it's it's really been uh, uh, intentionally designed to be multiplayer. You can have. One on one, one on two, two on three, four on four, uh, up to you know you can have six players in a match at any given time, and it's really structured so that uh, from an esports standpoint, uh, there you can uh, you can play through a series of timed events, and whoever accomplishes the uh, you know the goals of the event. Uh, And there are many, many different types of goals. So you have to be able to run the business or, you know, do something really good or something really different, you know. Uh, And uh, it's not all about money. It's in some cases, it's about building a customer base, or sometimes it involves marketing, you know, or R&D. If you're an R&D company, you have to learn what R&D means. Uh, It stands for research and development, but we have tech businesses in there so that uh there's there are businesses as you say kind of uh with the modern era uh we have drone delivery services and you go wow you know well drone delivery is really gonna happen here i mean it's really taking place in reality but you're going to be able to learn how to how to run a drone delivery or something like that uh we there's there's quite a variety of sort of fun interesting and a little bit science fictiony kind of uh, looking into the future style of businesses that are also in there
1: very good well I gotta tell you yeah it, it's it's a lot of fun I like this mix up of gameplay between strategy um kind of almost you know sim style game gameplay but also the card the deck building right very popular right now so this looks like a lot of free a lot of fun and I 100 free by the way um that'll be uh, available with no in-app purchases or ads or anything, right?
0: Yeah, that's really one of the amazing things. Uh, the The Singleton Foundation has basically paid for it all, and they literally want to give it away. So there's no in-app purchases. There's no uh, uh, no advertising in there. there's this is literally a hundred percent intended to be given away and be enjoyable uh to the you know to the players and there will be as i say uh uh we have some partners that will be contributing prizes for tournaments so we're going to have tournaments and and uh you know that are just like esports tournaments we have some esports companies that organize tournaments that are partners for us so we're going to be one of the games that is going to be uh uh, in esporting events that is also going to potentially, you know, get you some real world rewards. Oh, and very that cool. will include things like cash, like money, even things like college scholarships or other types of things will be wow. built into this. That's so, awesome. So it should be kind of cool.
2: Well I Roger, I just have to say as someone who appreciates, you know, we're, we're big fans of all types of games. I, this is a first for me. I feel like this is something that I have yet to see come out. So I think this is a really novel concept in a really great way, like you said, to not only enjoy yourself in playing a game, but for, for the younger crowd, be able to get their first exposure to those financial literacy literacy skills, business development. Almost it's like an entrepreneur 101 course, I feel like for 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 folks. So um, you know, where can where can our listeners find it? I know it's coming out soon here in May. What's the release date? What platforms is it on? Where can where can folks find the game?
0: You're gonna find it um uh, uh... It, it it'll be on uh, in the App Store, iOS and Android, and it, it'll uh, it'll be in Steam. So that basically it'll be on PCs and it'll be on Macs, and and uh, uh, the everything plays. You know, it's it, you don't have to restrict a given match to just one platform. You can oh, play oh, on an platform. iPhone against a yes, yeah, so it's cross-platform, and 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 it plays very well that way. So. Wow. Uh, that's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, to our listeners, you can learn more about it at uh, VentureValleyGame.com. We'll have a link to that uh, in our show notes, in our description, if you're on YouTube. Um, uh, but yeah, very exciting. And I, I, wanted to start with that because I know that's, uh, that's very much, uh, something, something happening right now. Um, but now we're gonna, we're gonna dive way back into your history, Roger, and go into <laughs> your time at Atari. Um, I'm excited about this because, you know, one of our last interviews with, uh, with Don Traeger, we got to kind of dive into his side of the Atari years. Um, and I think you have a very different uh, perspective because you worked as a, as a manager there for about five years. And I I think one thing that we have to touch on first is that any gamer that enjoys any kind of 3D gaming, whether they realize it or not, they kind of owe you a debt of gratitude because you worked on what is considered to be the very first, you know, first person 3D shooter game, Battlezone, all the way back in 1980. I have to ask you, like this is such a wild West topic you know of, of creating something from that has never been done before. What was it like making these 3d tank wireframes from
0: scratch? boy, you 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 hit it uh, in terms of it you know kind of being a Wild West starting from scratch, and never having done it before situation. Uh, uh, this this was a game that uh, literally, now, my, the part that I played in it was to create and design the graphics themselves, which was mostly tanks and spaceships and, you know, things that exploded on the screen, but this had literally never been done before. And the technology that uh, that afforded it to happen really was, was this vector technology, which basically means the, uh, that, the computer is uh, drawing lines and connecting lines to describe the three-dimensional shape of an object. So uh, that sounds pretty crude and pretty uh, uh, unrealistic, but at, at, which it would be today, but (laughs) back in the day, that had never been done before. So it was kind of amazing to see a a 3D line drawing run around on the screen and, and, you were basically shooting at and blowing up tanks on a, you know, enemy tanks and spaceships on an alien planet, and uh, it was it was uh, uh, no one had ever seen anything like it before. It was the way it was handed to me. Uh, the the programmer of the game, Ed Rotberg, he was amazing. Uh, he he had the you know the skills and the talent to figure out how to. How to do this from a programming standpoint but one day he he uh, contacted me and said hey Roger can you design the, the you know the objects that are going to be drawn and I said sure and I had no idea what I was talking about because there wasn't any software available at that time to build a three-dimensional object it didn't exist and there's tons of that stuff around today but at that time I had to sort of figure out what did I want these things to look like and then how do I draw them in three dimensions as lines that connect at points in space and without going into a long story I had to sort of figure that out uh, all <laughs> on my own wow. and, but I gave you know I handed that over to to uh, uh, you know the the rest of the team there and, and ed and and basically they did an amazing job. Uh, putting it together and making it work, and when it was all ready, it's like everyone went, "Oh my gosh!" You know, no one's ever seen anything like that before. So it it turned out to be a wildly popular game back in 1980.
2: So I gotta know, do you have any math background? Then did you take some like special geometry or algebra courses to help get that vector, that vector type of uh, you know calculations to to work
0: in the programming or? No, no, no. Nothing <laughs> nothing like that. Wow. I, I did have an industrial design background and okay. I knew how to do a three-dimensional drawing of an object if you were going to have it manufactured. And it's a kind of a top-down end view, side view of the same thing with dimensions on it. And that's kind of the technique that had to, uh, that I used, but that's That's ancient, ancient technology, you know, three-dimensional object drawing uh, for manufacturing is something that uh, uh, was the only thing I could think of, and it did work.
1: Especially, you know, Roger, to think about how, at at this time in arcades, you know, a lot of these games had a very low pixel count, but you look at, you know, this this special screen, right, the QuadraScan screen, it had a, a, a thousand and twenty-four by seven sixty-eight resolution that many desktop PCs wouldn't see for another like fifteen years. So this, I mean, I'm, I'm, right now we have a picture on the screen of the actual arcade cabinet, which is very eye-catching. I mean, this thing had to turn a lot of heads at the arcade.
0: Oh yes, oh yes, it was. It was. Uh, it you know, it had a sort of a periscope that you'd walk up to and you'd stick your eyes. You know in this little display and you could uh, steer left and right by grabbing the handles and push a button to shoot uh at objects in inside this you know in the screen and and uh the, it, there really had not been anything like that done before so from a physical standpoint it completely stood out from an experience standpoint it totally stood out and and when you it kind of a special effect that Ed put in the uh, uh, in the game is when when you fire a button or a missile at the tank and it explodes, all of the individual pieces of the tank fly into space and they all spin and everyone went, oh my gosh, we've just <laughs> never seen anything like that before. So, wow, uh, that was breaking new ground. As a coder, yes. I can
2: imagine that's the that's the point you pray and hope that everything is written correctly because <laughs> it's just so many things happening at one time. Looking at the picture here too, Nick, I have to ask. I mean, that looks like a really a special uh, arcade, ri- you know, gaming setup, right? It's not the standard one you'd see for other games. Was there an additional cost to manufacturing these to get these out in the public? Was there a was a concern about what it would cost to get this out there for people to see and play in, in the arcades?
0: Well, uh, I would say yes. There certainly was an, a, an additional cost to this game, but part of the um, uh, part of the atmosphere, the part of the the, uh, the the world of Atari at that time was that coin-operated games uh, were the high-end game systems. Those were the high end. Those were the deluxe, premium games, and they were the ones that typically established a reputation that would maybe be duplicated uh, and used again in the in the consumer cartridge games. So the coin-op guys were the they were the rock stars of of uh, Atari at that time, and and uh, so there was kind of an expectation that. You may want to spend some extra money, you know, on the, on the hardware, because this is entertainment. And every coin-op game, more or less, had its own hardware created for it, uh, which is, you know, totally backwards from today, where the, you know, the, all of the uh, uh, game design takes place within an existing set of hardware, you know, st- standard hardware. In those days, you could change the hardware to make something work.
1: Now Roger, you know your, the time that you spent at Atari, you really got to work with them during I think one of the the, the the golden periods for Atari right before things started to shift there in the in the mid 80s. but I mean man, you, you got to see some of those just I, I think the, the, the most important years in, in gaming history in terms of just creating the concept of a home console market and and producing quality titles. What was it like? you know, paint us a picture of working at this company at, at really the
0: peak of Atari. Well, uh, from my standpoint, it was, it was an amazing amount of fun. Uh, there wasn't the, you know, today, one of the things that exists today is that so many, you know, millions of games have been created and, and they live in categories and marketing categories and they're defined, they're sort of predefined and you say, well, it's, it's a game like this and like that and, and, you know, other games in, in those days. Every single game was was breaking new ground in some way. Uh, they may not be successful. And there were, you know, there were, there were hit games and there were games that were not hits, for sure. But Atari in those days was in kind of the envious role of being able to crank these things out. In many cases, they didn't take two years, you know, to make or three years to make. Uh, Atari was cranking out new coin-op games to sell you know, every month or every other month. And wow. so that was, it was just a continuous series <laughs> of updates and changes and new stuff. And eventually, yeah, there were, there were some major hits that were created and it was a lot of fun to be there.
1: Yeah. Now, I, one one product, um, you know, that I think very few people would actually know about, because not everything that Atari created, you know, was successful, and some things didn't even make it to market. When you're a company that big, you know, not everything is going to have, um, you know, a, a, a great story to tell. But I think this one, you, you know, something about right. Tell us about the Atari Cosmos.
0: <laughs> well, uh, there was a time uh, when, now, I had worked. Uh, originally, when I first started Atari, I worked in the in the uh, coin-op engineering cabinet design group, you know, designing cabinets. And then I moved into the art group, and then I wound up becoming uh, you know, doing game art, which was uh, you know an, an unusual thing. And then eventually, my kind of my final role at Atari uh, was uh, I was uh, running the corporate R and D group. And R&D research and development was a, it was quite an experience because uh, Atari at that time was making mountains of money. They just were, they were so profitable and so successful that what they, the challenge that was given to the R&D group was to come up with things that were completely different. It didn't matter how much it costs initially. You know, eventually, the whole idea was to come up with something that no one had ever seen before, and in the R and D group there were there were uh, a few key people. Al Alcorn, who was uh, the guy that you know that invented Pong and literally started Atari. Yeah, uh, uh, he was uh, he was my boss, and uh, uh, we had a, a small group of of people that came together. We we hired. Some sci- a couple of scientists because we were very interested in holography and creating three dimensional images holographically. And so we, we just wanted to learn, we learned all about how that had been done historically. And we had to figure out a way to do it uh, in a low cost way to be able to sell it as a mass uh, produced product. And we we ultimately Uh, invented a thing that we, a game playing system that was called Cosmos, uh, that was a small, you know, handheld electronic game system with cartridges that would plug in, uh, and the cartridges had multiple three dimensional Cosmo, or holographic images, that, well, that's what you looked at while you were playing uh, a game on a keyboard, that was mounted on the outside of the system. And, and uh, no one had ever seen anything like that. That was so completely different. Uh, and there was there was a whole team of uh, people that put that together. There were about a dozen different game system, or games that were uh, created and produced. Uh, one of the things that I did is I, I designed all of the hologram images themselves and, and uh, kind of worked that into the game. We had a Superman game and a, and a football game and a baseball game and a Roadrunner game. And, and there were all these different uh, sort of licensed titles that uh, uh, that uh, Atari had acquired for something else. And we used them. And, and this game system, we took it to the Toy Fair, which is an annual trade show event that, that takes place in the toy industry in New York. And we brought the Cosmos system and introduced it there. And everyone was just blown away. It was, mm. you know, there was never, no one had ever seen anything like that. And uh, basically we, we, uh, we took about a first year production worth of orders at that one show, and then came back from the show thinking, wow, we're done, you know, we're successful. <laughs> and and uh, uh shortly after that it turned out that uh Atari was so oversold on on its uh 2600 VCS system they were they had you know so many orders that they couldn't fill that uh the the senior execs at Atari decided to just hold on to Cosmos for maybe another year or so and do it next year and that was uh, that was sort of the principal reason why it never got manufactured, even right. though we had orders for it. But but it was quite the experience. And no, like I say, no one's ever heard of it. But uh, uh, there are photos that exist of it. It was it was a kind of a cool patented invention.
1: You know, inventing uh, 3D graphics wasn't enough for you, Roger. You had to go and invent holograms for gaming too.
2: <laughs> Very impressive. Do you still have one is there is there one put away somewhere that you've got for old time's sake or you know I mean do we can you we know, see one you know, is I, it
0: still out there I did well we we did a pilot production run so literally I mean all the tooling and everything was done for Cosmos and the packaging and all of that stuff and they only made they made about I don't know a couple of hundred of them just as a first shot and uh, I took a couple of them home but uh, through the years, they somehow just disappeared. And to the extent that there, I, I have seen, uh, I think, about three or four of them uh, that, that have been saved and are in, in some museums at this point. Mm. Uh, but no, I don't have one. I do have some, um, uh, some, some holograms from, from those days. And I've got those. So uh, yeah, one of those one of these days, you know, that's that's one of those things that's a, uh, once you've heard the story, uh, or until you hear the story, you don't know anything about it. But that was that was a fun trip.
1: Now, Roger, a little bit later, we're going to be kind of talking about your time coming up against the the legendary video game crash of 1983. But before we get there, you know, there's a there's a part of of gaming history that's kind of not quite as well known, and that's there was another video game crash that happened before then. Um, in 1977, a lot of cheap consoles were were created um, as as knockoffs to, to basically create their version of Pong, right? You were fairly new to Atari right when this was happening. What was that like from your perspective to see all of these new people just knocking off
0: Atari products left and right? Well, one one of the things that was kind of funny is that uh, there was a time back in the day when nobody really knew if video games was going to be an ongoing industry or business you know, there was certainly the possibility was still there that it was just going to be a fad, something that might not be around next month, you know. And, and uh, uh, that was a commonly felt uh, attitude uh, about most of the people, regardless of which company they, they belonged in. They just didn't know uh, if, if this was going to keep going or, or go away and, and turn into something else. So, uh we were all surprised literally at how large and how quickly it grew and and sustained itself uh when when the people were you know the the knockoffs started showing up and started being successful they didn't necessarily stay around very long but it inspired enough other companies i mean some some uh engineers at atari Decided to leave Atari and start up a game development company called Activision, you know, and that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, and, and that was completely new; no one had ever done that before, you know. And yeah. and so we did. Uh, uh, shortly, or a little while after the uh, the Cosmos uh, uh, debacle at Atari, I wound up leaving and starting my own company. Ah, so okay. uh, so that was. You know, that was kind of the, the uh, uh, we started to have a sense that maybe this industry will be around a while. Uh, I had no idea it was gonna be anything like it is today, but still, it, it, you know, if it could be around a while, then, then uh, uh, I, I did a startup uh, called Vidia, which people haven't heard about because it ran for a little bit and then we sold it to uh, Nolan Bushnell Oh. who was the founder of Atari and he wanted to get back into the games business after leaving Atari. And so uh, we were the foundation of Nolan's new uh, business that he renamed Sente, Sente Technologies. And the term Sente is, is, you know, the term, the word Atari is a is a term from the board game of Go, uh, if you didn't know that you know that's okay. where that came from mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, the word sente is kind of like check mate is to check in in uh, in chess uh sente is to atari so okay. there was this kind of that's okay. this is weird story uh, behind the scenes most people wouldn't know about that but we were sente technologies and we started building coin operated games uh, initially, uh, largely because the crashes that were taking place were in the consumer side of the business, but CoinOp was still doing well.
2: Interesting. Well, you mentioned Nick. You mentioned it, Roger. You just mentioned about the crashes. You know, the the big crash we we you talk about is in, uh, uh, you know, uh, eighty three, right? And and I think around that yeah. time we saw. The, the video games, you know, that industry going from you know a three point two billion dollar industry all the way down to a mere, I don't know, hundred million in nineteen eighty five. Around that time right. is when you you made the move to Bally, and, and you uh, kind of it shows your resume. And we when we talked, you know, kind of in the pre show, your 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 R and D team kind of outlasted that that crash. What was it like during that crash? What was your strategy to kind of survive the storm and during such a turbulent time, what was that like?
0: Well, uh, it is one of these things where, where, uh, particularly when you're in your own little startup and a company that hasn't been around a long time in an industry that is entertainment oriented, you know, it's, it's not something that, feels like it's gonna rock be rock solid for 20 years. You just don't know. So you try really, really hard to do something amazingly good each time you step up to the plate. You try to hit a home run, you don't always do it. But uh, in our case, we could see that the problems of the consumer business were sort of artificial to the games themselves. There were too many competitors and a bunch were doing kind of junky games and try to capitalize on the marketplace being strong, uh, but they didn't produce, you know, good good games, good entertainment. And so that we felt that that was a big contributor to the decline there, but the coin operated game side of the world still was doing just fine. I mean, it really was uh, because young people like to go out and, and uh, you know, Throw some quarters into the machine and and uh, have some fun, and all of that was uh, was a place that we sort of parked for a while before getting back into the consumer business when it when it sort of came back. But Valley was an ideal uh, ultimate candidate to own us. Uh, Nolan sold us to Valley, and Valley is an old company. It's been around a long time. They've uh, uh they you know made slot machines and and uh, pinball machines for decades and uh also coin operated games and and we were we uh, they're located back in chicago and we were this little group out in silicon valley uh and we were sort of different and and they let us do what we wanted to do they left us alone and so we had a lot of (laughs) creative freedom in uh in Bali and and did all kinds of crazy stuff there
1: yeah there's quite a few uh quite a few coin op games that, that were created there during your your time um i definitely remember uh, i think i went to a retro arcade and saw snake pit um and even a, a mini golf game right so, uh, sente mini golf is oh, that yeah. how you pronounce that
0: yeah yeah oh yeah yeah oh that was fun that was fun we we made a a uh we produced a, a real series of, uh, of different games. Our game system, coin-op system was unique in that it was, uh, and this was really Nolan's idea. Nolan wanted to have a coin-op uh, cartridge updatable games, coin-op game, okay. which basically means uh, the hardware was the same but the programming would be uh, uh, its own circuit board that would be plugged in. And you wouldn't have to pick up a physical coin operator game and move it to a different location uh, after a while. You just brought a new game in, plugged it in, put new graphics on the, on the cabinet, and then a new control panel would drop into the control area. And so we, we cranked out uh, a, a few dozen uh, different coin operated games that were all updatable as a system. And that oh, wow. that was actually the uh, kind of the unique side wow. of, of uh, Sente. It was called the Sente system and no one had ever seen that kind of thing before. And the operators that operated those games really loved that. So that contributed to our success.
2: Well, that seems like it would one provide a cost reduction because you're not replacing the entire setup, right? You're just now kind of right can have iteration sprints of new games that would just require a facelift and probably the time to development and launch was quicker too, right? Yep, yep, yes, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> so, I mean, did others try to emulate that strat that manufacturing strategy? Is that something that you kind of were the uh, innovators on or, or what was, we, did, we, did you find that we you kind of had that? Okay.
0: Yeah, we were, the, we were the, we started it, but there were some others that said, Hey, you know, this is actually a really good idea. Right. And so similar updatable systems, you know, were created in the coin-op world after that. Uh, we didn't, uh, uh, we didn't worry too much about it because we had a, we had a pretty good head start. Uh, and we had uh, a, quite a quite a collection of games, and we were coming out with new stuff all the time anyway, because we we had uh, what was called the kind of the informal name of it was the Sente Arcade Computer or SAC SAC the SAC one was was this game system that we we're talking about, but we also designed and produced this thing called the SAC two which was a motion controlled base game system. Wow. It was updatable, but it was a, it was like a, uh, like a flight cockpit that you'd climb into and you'd have a big oh, monitor wow. in front of you, but you could steer and you'd dive, you'd climb, you'd rotate around. It was, a, it was a, a large motion controlled system. And that was the SAC 2 and no one had ever seen anything like that before at that time either.
2: Wow. So you've mentioned so many great things coming out of your time at Bali. What's the one game? What's the one, if you had to pick one out of everything you saw while you were at Bali, what's your favorite?
0: (laughs) Oh man. Or what's one you got a a good,
2: a good story about?
0: Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of tough. I, uh, you know, battle zone was a biggie just largely because, uh, uh, it was, it was so dumbfounding to everyone that ever saw it at that time. Um, there was uh, a game that I sketched out once on a piece of paper, literally, Uh, you know, it wasn't real fancy, but uh, showed it at a group meeting uh, that turned out to be a game called Warlords. And Warlords was a fun, uh, Warlords got made uh, and, you know, produced in both coin-op and consumer. And uh, that was, uh, that's where four players could uh, fight against each other, protecting their corner of the TV monitor. That had a little brick wall around uh, the corners of each uh, of each corner of the uh, of the monitor. And a ball would bounce. A, a a weapon would bounce around in in the middle of the screen, and you'd try and deflect it from hitting your bricks. Uh, and as a four-player multiplayer game, it actually was quite a lot of fun. I I also personally like there was a football game uh, Atari football that as a coin op game you you uh, it had a a very large trackball where the ball itself you know was was about that big wow. and you'd you'd hit it and spin it it had a lot of momentum and you ran your player around in a top down view of a uh, football field and the running that trackball was quite a uh, kind of an exercise that turned out to be quite a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I I enjoyed playing that one a lot.
2: I can relate. I not that I've played that in particular but I played other few ones with the large rolling ball and I remember the, I played it for a few hours at an arcade and then I would come home and the next day it's like it's like going to the gym. I woke up feeling <laughs> sore my forearm my forearm yeah. was sore from rolling the ball. <laughs>
0: So, well, no, talk- you, you could tell you could tell who the good players were because they were tough dudes. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's right. They got built out pretty well.
2: Yeah. You need to be a little physically fit to be able to compete on that rolling ball yeah, game, so Yeah, that's true, yeah. Well, I mean, Roger, we we talk so much about the gaming aspect of your time at Ballet, but I think you did a lot more than just that there, right? I mean, did you oversee the creation of some theme park attractions during your time? Like, what did you create and what was it like making something like that so unique?
0: Well, that was, that was actually nothing that had been planned a long time. It's something that kind of came out. Uh, we were this, uh, again, kind of this research and development uh, creative group in Silicon Valley and the rest of the Valley Corporation was was back in, you know, back East in Chicago. And uh, one of the divisions of Valley was Six Flags. So that the Six Flags theme park chain was owned by Valley and operated by Valley. And uh, one of the, you know, one of the execs said, hey, do you guys think you can, uh, you know, bring some game uh, technology into the theme parks? And we held up our hand and said, "Oh yeah, absolutely, we'll do that." They said, "Well, go do something. See what you did." So we we wound up um, basically designing a dark ride, uh, which is a you know an enclosed building that you you get to enter through uh, you know by climbing into a car that moves around on a steady path inside the building, right? And the dark ride. Uh, it was, it had a theme of Ghostbusters. So it was a nice. Ghostbusters dark ride, and we called it the Hauntington Hotel. It was the Ghostbusters Hauntington Hotel. So the ho- it, what what happened is you get into the car and you, you know, the, the the lid would close on you. So you're kind of locked in there, but you had a gun, you had a ghostbusting gun. Ah, oh, cool. That sat right in front of you as a rider. And as you moved through what was a show that presented itself, as you moved through this, quote unquote, hotel, that was completely full of, of ghosts and, uh, uh, you know, animated characters and things that were all around you. Uh, you, were, you were a ghostbuster that was zapping the ghosts. And this was a chance where we actually got a chance to use our holography technology again, oh, and okay. we made three-dimensional holographic ghosts that would fly through the room, and some of these were really big, and you could shoot at them, and uh, And there was a laser that came out of the gun, and you could see where it went, and you basically could uh, could try and shoot at these different ghosts as you move through, and if you hit one, they would react, you know, they would they would disappear they'd vaporize or they'd wave their hands or, you know, but they, you had that interactive ability to, to do that. And as a player in the game, you also got a score for however many you hit. So as your car is leaving the dark ride, you'd get, there'd be a display there that said, uh, you know, you, you hit uh, 25 ghosts or whatever the number was. Right. And so that, uh, That was a a full ride attraction. We did all the engineering uh, of all the technology, the guns, the holograms, the the stage settings and the story. Uh, I think I can send you some pictures of some of that stuff and it all worked. But uh, when it was sort of reached a a conclusion point for, for us, we handed it over to Six Flags, and they said, okay, thanks, and we'll take care of it from there. And then basically, we never heard another word. They they liked it, but uh, it never, they, for whatever reason, and most of the reasons that they would have, they had, you know, operating a theme park is very different than, than uh, you know, an arcade, and they had all kinds of uh, other priorities that took uh, took place. So. So the Huntington Hotel never actually got built outside of our offices, where we built it and made it work and ran around shooting ghosts.
1: Now, that's especially fascinating to me, Roger, because I can name many attractions that have been released in the last 10 years, 15 years, that use that exact template you just described of an interactive ride where yep. you shoot things, they respond, mm-hmm. and then you have yep. a score that you can then look at the end and be like, hey, you know what, how did I rank? So it sounds like you essentially created this and just aren't really credited for being the the, the, the forefather of these interactive style dark rides.
0: That's, well, you you kind of nailed it there because yeah, <laughs> Disney's done it. I mean, several uh, several yeah. other uh, uh, companies have, have since built that although there was at least a 10 year span when there was nothing and then eventually uh you know others kind of caught up to it but we we were the very first no one no one had done anything remotely like that at that time.
1: Well Brad that's why Q T V legends exist so that people like Roger can
2: <laughs> set the record straight once and for all, right? Our listeners get the the real, the, the true story right here. Breaking news. Here That's on right. with the bill buttons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very cool. Well, uh, you know your your career uh, kind of hopped from one one gaming uh, studio industry studio to the next, right? Because EA was the next stop um, in your career as a senior producer. Um, from '87 until '89. Now I, I have to throw it back again to our, our Don Traeger interview series because we spent a lot of time talking about his time uh, at EA and uh, you know EASN, the precursor to EA Sports, and, and everything that happened there. Uh, I did notice that you were given a special thanks credit on Jordan versus Bird. How did you contribute to that title, <laughs> and do you have any any stories about working with Don?
0: Well, I really enjoyed working with Don. He, he was really, like one of my favorite people. He he and I worked together, and and uh, uh, he reported to me. But uh, he was he was fully capable of doing stuff all by himself. We we collaborated and we got together. And I was, you know, I would try and help many at any point in time uh, that I had the chance. But he was fully capable of of doing setting out and accomplishing what he set out to do. Uh, he's he's uh, been one of my favorite people to work with through all these years. Very very talented guy, but. Uh, when I was um, when I went to EA, uh, they I, I reported to Trip Hawkins, who was CEO, and and uh, also a gentleman named Bing Gordon, who also had been with EA, uh, one of the kind of founding uh, uh, talented uh, genius guys that that uh, uh, helped get that started and running, uh, and and he uh, between the two of them, I reported in as the guy who would be responsible for uh, the production of sports, action, and arcade games. That was the way the categories were defined. So it was EA, sports, action, arcade. So, okay, you know, that was all kind of within my background. And so uh, those were the categories that were kind of handed to me. Uh, Don, of course, uh, produced, you uh, you know, like, like, uh, uh, Jordan versus Bird and, and uh, uh, things like caveman Olympics, uh, I think he mentioned in his uh, interview, (laughs) uh, was, you know, it's just a crazy, funny idea. uh, And uh, uh, I produced some additional games on the side. And, and to be honest, I, I kind of struggled trying to remember all the things that came from the group. Uh, I know that one of the challenging projects uh, for me was one uh, that was really the very beginning of the John Madden series. And and uh, John Madden uh, had been started before I got there. Uh, and I know that Trip was, was like one of the real key instigators, uh, but there were other people that had worked on it. But basically the game uh, uh, was, <laughs> It was very, it was a very old game at that time. Uh, even at that time, because originally it was for the Apple II, and the Apple II was not a graphics machine under any circumstances, <laughs> from a certainly from a gaming standpoint. So uh, the original, a lot of the design work went into it, into that. But getting uh, John Madden up on things like the Commodore sixty four. And the Amiga, which you know, you know, really took it up uh, several notches graphically, uh, is is part of sort of a continuation of what turned that into a success that's still successful today. I'm still blown away after decades, uh, you know, how well John Madden has done. Yeah, and I no think I, I sort of feel like I have to give credit to uh, to Trip largely uh, because so much. I think there was a key secret which made uh, Madden successful as a as a video game, was that they wanted to keep uh, his John Madden's personal influence uh, and and his knowledge of football and how he built a strategy to make plays happen uh, in a in a real football game. Was brought into this game, and it wasn't just a kind of a here's a famous name uh, stuck on a box with uh, kind of a a, a real generic uh, right. a game in there. And that was that was such a great key. I learned it walking in the door. You know, that was kind of what I found out. I said, "Oh, that's a great idea." And so uh, that that was very cool. But yeah, working with Don was great. I, he he and Michael Kosaka I know he mentioned Michael uh he was he was a wonderful conceptual artist uh we had we had several other people you know in our group and we've turned out to produce uh, quite a series of uh of uh, you know successful games for EA
2: well, Roger, I know we're, we're getting close to time here, but I, I can't wrap up the, today's interview and today's session with you without talking a little bit about your time at Disney. Because uh, I think you hit Disney right at the time when uh, the early 90s were, were a huge time for Disney. I think you were there in 89 to 93. I mean, there were a steady flow of games and arguably the strongest lineup of licensed titles in Disney's history, right? On consoles like the SNES and Genesis and whatnot. What was it like to develop games with, you know, the internationally recognized and famous icons like Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck? I mean, there, you had quite a, a hand in some of those
0: titles, didn't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> we, <laughs> D- D- Disney was fantastic. It, it, was, it was a real learning experience for me because even though I'd been working on and developing games for a bunch of years at that point, uh, Disney as a corporation, had so much sophistication in the way they utilize their properties. Um, you know, the, the, the one of the things I got to do was was work with Disney licensors, meaning the the companies that take a license from Disney to use Mickey Mouse. Uh, you know, like Castle of Illusion was was a big game. Uh, and and uh, working with the, you know, the team that built it. Uh, Fantasia was another great one, kind of a, a funny one. Uh, uh, Sega was uh, a licensor that also uh, uh, licensed Quackshot, <laughs> and uh, there was <laughs> it was one of those things where, as as the as the guy representing Disney, my job was to make sure that they used the characters properly within the way Disney generally wants to maintain, you know, their character base, uh, not do anything crazy. And I remember receiving a build for, the, you know, a pre-production build for Quackshot uh, to look at that came, you know, straight from from the Sega team that was working on it. And there was a section of the game where uh, Donald Duck, who's, you know, the lead character is, he picks up a club and he's running around and he's clubbing these baby seals. Oh! And we're going. <laughs> we're going. What? Right. <laughs> we can't do that. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you never would have guessed that it never showed up in any of the documentation preceding it, but there it was. And so we had to, you know, I had to get back to him and say, "Hey, guys, you know, this is really interesting, but but we can't have Donald Duck clubbing baby seals." And, yeah. And. Yeah, that, that had to get pulled. But, but learning about the characters, that was a really valuable part of working there. I, I, uh, uh, they had a program at Disney for, for Disney management people that the, the program taught you a lot about the activities of the corporation, but it also had one day in which I got sent to Disneyland and, was and I had to dress up as a character you know one of the walk around Disney characters right who were you and and I was Eeyore the donkey (laughs) wow I didn't didn't pick it I didn't pick it but but you know they said okay uh you look like you fit into this one so okay so (laughs) you know backstage you, you you put on the costume and you have somebody telling you about what do you do what do you don't do you're not supposed to talk, but you can sign someone's autograph. There's all these rules of do this, don't do that. And, and I had to learn all that. And part of what you learn is that there are, there's all these different reactions. The amazing part of that is how, seeing how other people react, not to, not to you as a human inside a costume, but to the character of the costume. and. Like little kids will run up and they'll kick you in the shins, <laughs> or or <laughs> old folks, you know, will will remember back in the day when they remember reading the story of Eeyore and all that. Uh, Christopher Robin and and so it was incredibly valuable to learn firsthand about characters and about people's reactions, their emotions to it. Uh, all of that was uh, was kind of part of an amazing learning experience for me at Disney. We, we also, I'll just say quickly that we also, um, we also produced some really innovative games ourselves, uh, uh, in the Disney software division. We, we had a game called, uh, the animation studio, which really isn't a game, it's a tool and it's a teaching tool. And it, uh, it basically showed people how Disney teaches animators to draw characters in animation, only you can do it on a computer. Wow. And it's, it's amazing how you go through the lessons that are presented to you. And there's basically a series of, well, in real animation, uh, theatrical animation, They're, the animators have a stack of transparent papers and they draw on the first one and they put another sheet on top and they draw mm-hmm. it a little different and they put another sheet on top. Well, that's kind of how this program worked. You could drop sheets on top. You learned how these char- how to make a character walk, you know, how, how to wow. do some of those things. And all of that was a really cool product. Uh, it was largely created by a, an amazing, uh, a guy uh, we still know, uh, Reichardt von Wolfschild, who was an amazingly talented creative engineer. Uh, And and we also uh, had a system of games that we made for a completely untapped market at that time, uh, which was preschool children. You go, preschool? You know, (laughs) back in those days, we made a series of games, it was uh, Mickey's ABCs, Mickey's one, two, threes, and and a game called uh, uh, Colors and Shapes. And it was all about teaching and addressing, using the characters to teach and address learning principles to preschoolers. And that was, uh, no one had done that before. That was completely new and different. And it was very successful, largely because I think, uh, in addition to the fact that the games were done well, uh, the Disney, you know, reputation of the Disney characters associated uh, really helped. We also had one ace up our sleeve too, which was a thing that we invented, we made, uh, which was called the sound source. And back in the day, the sounds, uh, uh, most personal computers at home, could not reproduce a digitized voice very well at all. Right. It could generate beeps, but it wasn't. Uh, and we wanted to have Mickey and Donald and Goofy, uh, the actual recorded voices of those characters speaking to the young people. And so we invented this thing. Uh, and I designed uh, you know, a good chunk of it uh, which was called a sound source. It was basically a speaker in a box that had a Mickey Mouse on it, and basically you plug that in to your computer, and the digitized audio came out from the kids. And that was that was completely new at that time. Sure. Today, well, well, you know, it's insignificant. It's like anything can do that. But at well, that time, gonna... that was very unique.
2: I was going to say, it sounds like that that thread continues in your life though, right? Your time at Disney putting out these platforms, these educational style games seems to come full circle to today, right? With your upcoming launch of, of Venture Valley and how that's really going to teach... You know teach that next generation about those financial literacy skills and business development and entrepreneurship. So I, you know, again, you know, for, for our listeners out there, please go out and check out Venture Valley. It looks like it's going to be an awesome game for, for you to check out. Do you have anything else you want to say about it, Roger, before we wrap up?
0: I, uh, gosh, I, I, uh, I'm basically, uh, going to say that you're kind of right connecting Disney and the sound source and Mickey Mouse into this, to the extent that the learning that took place involves combining and blending education with entertainment. And uh, that's a trickier process than you might imagine. But when it really, really works, it's great. And and we're hopeful. Uh, Venture Valley looks like uh, we're 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 off to a, a very good start on that and there's all kinds of things that will come from that too so we'll see
1: well I'll tell you Roger you know you're talking to two uh, relatively new dads right now so you know yes. educational software is something that uh, is I think is on the brain more for us you know thinking about our our, <laughs> our kids uh, development cycles and they're gonna play games somehow so um, having having opportunities like that where there's there's people out there that are putting out uh, you know a, a very focused, uh games that help people to learn something and especially in in today's you know just just crazy times with the economy uh, you know being able to teach financial literacy um to a new generation is so important so uh you know we're, we're definitely supporters of of your work with this to our listeners and viewers check it out. It's AdventureValleyGame.com. Again, a link for that will be in our show notes. You can get it on Steam or also look it up on the Android or iOS marketplaces. Well, Roger, uh, it is uh, so long but not farewell because we do have one more part in this series because we, or we're going to get to the, some very, very fun stuff um, in part two with your time at uh, Sega, Bandai Namco, just to name a few. Uh, and we can't wait. But uh, this has been a fantastic interview um, so much. And obviously, you know, the world has to know about your eeyore story that's the real breaking news <laughs> <laughs>
0: embarrassing but hey what can i say at this
1: point? <laughs> there you go well yeah thanks so much and uh yeah to all of our listeners and viewers we'll have another uh, again episode with roger uh coming up very soon so look out for part two right here on qtb legends
2: anything else for the people brad check us out keep listening thanks to roger we're looking forward to having him back uh, back again soon and uh until next time, peace out. All right. What it do. We'll see you. <laughs>